rationalize feedback. Designers will get feedback and then they'll say, well, why isn't that? Well, he's not the right user or, you know, he was using it incorrectly. He was using wet wood. Um, I, I have a philosophy of when you get feedback, assume you have a problem until you prove you don't. Um, which kind of gets you to a point you, you're kind of paranoid, you're hypercritical. But starting a business, you had to be critical of yourself and you had to take feedback and adjust. You're listening to Different by Design. I'm Linnea Haggard. In our last episode, we talked with John Cunningham, CEO of Ox Tools USA about defending polarizing designs and defining visual brand language with the example of his own product development journey in designing and developing a new tape measure for the Ox Tools brand. Now we continue that discussion with questions from our audience about their pain points in the product development process and questions like, when designing, should you put the customer or the end user first? How do you convince your leadership of the validity of a polarizing design? How do you transfer this product development process to the world of startups? John shares his thoughts on these questions and more in part two of this podcast, coming up. In our discussion together, John, we talked a lot about the polarizing effect of your tape measure design and your journey of defending that design um, and going forward with it because you knew that it was based in research, it was driven by user needs. This is a challenge for so many of us in the design world as leaders or managers of the creative and strategic innovation efforts in our company. We so often receive this pushback or resistance from higher management to ideas that might be a little risky, but with huge opportunity for reward. John, can you tell our audience a little bit about how you approach convincing your executive leadership, management, the boardroom um, about the value of a design that may be polarizing or a little bit scary or bold to embrace? Yeah, so I guess there's two things that um, as an innovator, as a thought leader, as somebody who uh, wants to challenge, again, being tough, dynamic, and different. Um, a lot of times when you see a first design, um, you know, I think we talked about the concept car. People will look at a concept car and be like, oh my God, it's terrible. It's, it's, it's ugly. I can't, I, it's not going to work. And then you see it again, you see it three times, and then you see it three years from now, and it becomes the standard or the norm. But that first person who was uh, bold enough to, to step out of the the norm, um, you're always going to get criticism. Going back to the management, how you sell them, you know, one of the philosophies that I have is, you know, the products can't be designed in the boardroom. Um, as a product developer, you can't let your bias to go into saying, this is what I like. Um, again, going back to my earlier point, I'm not going to use it eight hours a day. I'm not going to be in 10 degree weather working, you know, framing a house. Um, so I'm not the user, and I think I think a lot of times management gets in the way of of innovation. Um, management gets in the way of being able to say this is different, and are, they're afraid that if they're different, they may not be able to sell it. Whereas the first person who steps out, yes, you take the risk, but a lot of times you also get the reward 
of being different and being uh, ahead of the curve. And then in three years time, people will then try to catch up to you. In terms of the financial um, aspect of it, trying to be a niche person, um, I think looking at you know, the, the financials, it's a big market. And I think if you can get 100% of a smaller market, it might be better than 1% of a large market. So it, a lot of times it is comes down to, to math of saying, you know, can you make this work? It's too niche of a product. Yes, you're going to have struggles because you're going to have tooling. You have a lot of hard costs that go into the product development process that you won't be able to recoup. So there is a balance. But the reality is, is that if you deliver the right product to the customer, nine times out of 10, your, your financials are going to work. And, and your sales process gets easier uh, because customers call you. You almost turn the entire sales process upside down. You're not going out there presenting to customers. Your, your customers are coming to you saying, my customers, the end user, wants to buy this product and I want to buy from you. So the economics of pricing swing back to you know, the brand, come back to that when you have a product that people want and you're different, then you, you, you have the economics of probably better margins. So I mean, let me break that down. So I guess one, getting leadership aligned um, goes back to good user work. And if the leadership appreciates the voice of the customer, then your facts will set you free. <laughs> if you can show why the product is designed that way, why the elements are there, what user observation, what user feedback drove that that work um again sometimes you have uh, you might have leadership that might uh, not appreciate the process and you have to convince them but i think any good product company uh leadership has learned over the years that the the end user the customer is is the boss and as long as you've done your homework then they should fall in line again i say should um we, we all know that, you know, sometimes the ego gets in the way and arrogance gets in the way. But I think good user work usually uh, will help define why this product looks this way and why um, it is the right answer. So I guess the other part, part is don't rationalize feedback. A lot of times people will, and I'll, I'll be critical, designers will get feedback and then they'll say, well, why isn't that? Well, he's not the right user or you know, he was using it incorrectly. He was using wet wood, you know, blah, 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 blah. Um, I, I have a philosophy of when you get feedback, assume you have a problem until you prove you don't, um, which kind of gets you to the point you, you're kind of paranoid, you're hypercritical. But starting a business, you had to be critical of yourself and you had to take feedback and adjust. And speaking of feedback, that's a perfect segue into our next question from our audience about your approach to design research in this project. You talked a lot about doing hands-on observational research with your target users, contractors. Um, what was your approach to using surveys as a design research tool? Was there a place for that in this project? On surveys, I like trying to have at least open-ended comments so that people can say, why do they like it? Why do they choose this one? And I find, even though it's tedious, I find reading 400 uh, pieces of feedback either alerts me to something, a trend that I might have missed uh, in my user work, or a 
concern that somebody has or just a, a bias um, that we have. So on this tape measure example, um, things like um, I'm not really worried about the design. I'm worried about the, the durability of the product. Um, so things like durability have to kind of be conveyed in the in the, the product design. Uh, things like I don't want any kind of uh, I, I don't I'm worried about my tools being dirty, which sounds bizarre for contractors. But, you know, there were many, many comments about, hey, I, I like the all black tape measure. You know, branding wise, we want blue. We want blue. Contractor says blue is going to get dirty. And it's going to look like crap. I'd rather have the black one so that it always looks good and it, it doesn't show the dirt. Um, so things like that, I probably wouldn't hang my hat that that's a, an element that I would go with. But it allows me to have some different thoughts. And again, just as I said before, pressure test your hypothesis. So surveys allow you to kind of say, OK, here's something I didn't think of or here's something that confirms it's not going to be you know, the only tool I use, but it's simply one that I use to kind of uh, reinforce or discover new ideas. One of the things we always try to emphasize with clients here at Sunberg Farr is the reality that there are always multiple stakeholders involved in every design process, multiple stakeholders that you have to understand their needs and desires and incorporate that into the emotional and functional experience of the product. John, how do you balance the sometimes conflicting goals of customers versus end users. With the Ox tool measuring tape, for example, you would want to be selling that to big box retailers like a Lowe's or a Home Depot. Um, but how do you balance what they're looking for with what contractors actually need? Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and that's a reality is, and, and probably through my 25 years getting pounded on the head, um, you can never be a purist. I usually let I love, love the industrial designers be the purists, and I, I have to be the realist uh, sometimes because you, know, you, you do have to consider um, the customer. And I think go back to uh, competitive benchmarking. I think part of the part of the convincing a customer is being able to understand the the I guess the give and take uh, of their their listing. So, for example, Lowe's. I'm, I'm going to look at what are the competitive products that they have on the shelf today? What are the price points? What are the feature sets that they're offering? Um, what, are, what are their competitors? So Home Depot, what is Home Depot offering? And I start to kind of, in, in the I guess left quadrant, start framing out what is my scope? You know, what, what, where can I play? Um, and then I balance the next quadrant of saying, here's what the user is saying. Here's what the market reality is. So you kind of put all these quadrants in and then in the center, you're kind of coming back saying, okay, you know, the biggest frustration for the user is the fact that the tape only lasts six months. Okay. Now I'm going to, I'm going to start feeling out the, um, well, if I gave you twice as much life, would you pay 50% more? What, what are my kind of my, I guess, parameters to say, how far can I go? Um, but all that, if for, for anybody who cooks, I mean, it's the it's the recipe. You're putting everything in there to be able that, and at the end, you taste it and say, okay, this this is going to work. I can charge twenty percent more because I have these facts that back up um, why the customer will pay for it. Um, 
and you, you do, you constantly are challenging yourself. You constantly are, are rethinking the, the, uh, the approach. So there's really not a, you know, you can't be stubborn. You have to be able to say, yeah, this thing's absolutely worth, you know, $49.99 when every competitive product out there is $9.99. You know, you might be able to get away with this, but you have to constantly challenge your assumptions and then verify your assumptions back to the, the customer and back to the user. So a lot of times big companies don't want to involve the customer. One of the things that I love about a smaller company like Ox is that I, I can sit down with a buyer and I can say, let me put all the cards on the table. Is it risky? Sure, it's risky. Everything's risky in life. But if I sat down and get to buy in from the customer during the process, then then you're you're they're bought in. They know where you're going, so it doesn't become a sales pitch. So my my advice would be don't be afraid to get your customer involved in product development. Uh, I'm sure that many people will say you're wrong, John. You can't do that. There's intellectual property. There's all the other legal rules. Uh, but the reality is is that if you can get their insight and if you can get their parameters and you can get their buy-in, you then have that one more uh, ingredient to the, to the recipe to say, uh, when I launch, I will be successful. So we've talked about how to align with your executive leadership in terms of the value of the voice of the customer and the importance of making that king in product development. We've also talked about balancing the needs and desires of your users versus your customers and all the other stakeholders involved in the design process. I also want to ask a question from our audience relating to the product itself and the design of the product. As a designer, how do you harmonize the sometimes competing criteria of embodying your brand in your product versus maybe incorporating specific features that have been determined by your research to be a must-have for your target segment of users. How do you approach any potential conflicts or trade-offs there? I would say that the, this might be cliche, but think about the solution um, and, and make sure you're working from the solution back. Um, the, the elements of, of branding, the elements of design can be added. And I, I don't want to offend anybody, but I think making sure that you you solve the problem first, and then the design should help complement or enhance or communicate that solution. Is there an example of this that you could share with us today, maybe from the camping stove that you developed as part of your NCAMP product portfolio? I know you had talked a little bit about that. Ultimately, the stove started out as a, a collapsible combustion chamber. So the, the solution was the combustion chamber and then built around it was the visual, uh, the visual look and feel of the product so that it was different. It was unique. It wasn't, it wasn't your father's Coleman stove. Uh, so a lot of those things uh, certainly uh, now give it the element of, yes, this is a consistent family. This is a consistent look. This is something that somebody went the extra mile and you know in, in today's day and age of you know copycats and chinese knockoffs um you know having something that somebody can look at and say i can tell somebody spent the extra time to think about the product think about the look and think about the functionality and how it all fits together so i think it's 
that's the beauty of, of design is that when it all comes together, there's a solution and then there's a, an emotional feel that gets, gets uh, portrayed into the design. There's another area that we haven't talked about yet, but that a lot of our audience is very interested in, and that is how you translate your product development process that has brought you so much success in the corporate world to your startup endeavors or to a startup in general. What advice could you give? Going from corporate America down to kind of entrepreneur, um, the same principles can be applied. You know, I went from you know million dollar budgets down to uh, no budget, uh, yet the process can still be uh, applied. So the the beauty of uh, a good product development process is that it doesn't have to be expensive, and you can spend as much money or as little money as long as you follow the process. Speaking of money, a lot of entrepreneurs and startups see money as such a huge barrier to entry in the market with their product. How could you speak to that? Is it a barrier? Is it not a barrier? How big of a role does money play in your overall success as an entrepreneur in a startup? And for any startups listening in, what should they be worried about? What should they not be worried about in terms of bringing a physical product to market? You can't throw money at starting a business. Yes, money helps, but um, there are so many other things that are more important than than money. Um, I guess my my biggest advice, um, and again, being critical of, of the industry, you know, things like invent help um, are probably the last thing you need to be worrying about when you're starting a company. I mean, what you really want to get to is you want to get um, passionate customers. You, you want to get your product where people are, are going to respond to the product that are going to be just as passionate about your brand and that being just as passionate about making you successful. Um, so my advice to anybody is, is go slow. And it, it probably goes against every, every book or everybody that is in the industry, but big mistake or going fast um, usually makes, generates big mistakes. And as I said before, unless you have unlimited amount of cash, you have to be very precious. You have to be very careful with your cash and making sure you're doing things um, correctly, but you're also doing things that are economically um, uh, beneficial. As much as testing and, and as much user work you do, you're not going to get it perfect on, on the first time. So allow, allow yourself enough flexibility to make mistakes. So don't spend all your money on you know five thousand pieces because you think them. If you get five hundred pieces and you sell five hundred pieces, life is good. You order more, but if you're wrong and you have to correct, you, you didn't bet the farm. So that's probably the biggest thing in corporate America. If we did a product launch, we want to launch with one hundred fifty thousand pieces. So we had to spend a lot of time getting the process. We spent a lot of money. We spent a long time getting everything perfect because when you went to go, um, it was it was a big bet. It was millions and millions of dollars. As a small company, bet $10,000, prove it out, bet $20,000, prove it out, and go through this process of learning. And that when you do have a mistake, you don't feel, you don't you haven't devastated the company and you don't feel like, it's okay. It was learning. It's part of part of the process and part of learning. So that's probably as an entrepreneur, um, test and learn, bet small, learn small, 
Um, and then when you're ready, you know, we're, we're in year four now. We're now going through production runs uh, that are now we're making 10,000 pieces uh, because now we have high confidence in the process, high confidence in our suppliers and have proved it out. But uh, I would never have day one have bet, you know, $100,000 on a new product. With the increasing momentum and energy towards designing for a sustainable future across industries, in your opinion, what would it take for the design community and executive leadership in this industry to consider more seriously the effects and the sustainable outcomes of their product design process? Yeah, no, I think it's a great question because I think um, those who've been in power tools, hand tools, uh, unfortunately, we've, we've gone through a, probably a 15, 20 year phase of disposable tools. Um, and, and maybe it's regulations, maybe it was, uh, but there used to be metal housings. Uh, if you can pull out your, your grandfather's drill, it was, it was bulletproof. It was something that would last 50 years versus lasting, you know, 50 days. Um, uh, so I, I think there's a real element of a resurgence of durability and something that's going to last long. Um, and, you know, know that, that that has a cost, but I absolutely feel that there is going to be the next cycle is, is designing things that will last a generation that can be passed down to the next generation. I think that that art is lost. And uh, I do believe that's, that could be a simple innovation, whether it's material selection, whether it's technology. Um, you know, I, 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 Coming from the power tool side, it always pained me to watch how many lithium batteries uh, or how many NICAD batteries a company would go through. And yes, you, you want to get them recycled, but boy, there's a lot of, uh, of batteries that, are, that, are, that we're going through. So, you know, the day of having electricity as, as your source in a generator or a panel uh, are now you know, translated over to cordless technology. And I think uh, I'm hoping that big manufacturers, unfortunately, Ox doesn't have the resources they have, but hoping that the bigger companies are thinking about how to make a battery uh, that is much more sustainable than what we have today. But yeah, I, I do think there is a, a massive opportunity. I want to wrap up our discussion today with any last thoughts and wisdom you have for designers in a corporate setting or entrepreneurs who are trying to build a brand with market-winning products? Building a brand uh, in any context is hard. Building a brand as an entrepreneur is extremely hard. So I think any, anybody who is an entrepreneurial side, um, you, you can think about the product, but you also have to think about just as important, think about the brand and, and how you bring branding uh, to your entrepreneurial endeavor. And the more you can have that story about your brand, the story of why you're there, um, that, that, that's magic. Uh, people want to root for the underdog. And uh, I think this, that simple thing of you know, tell your story. You know, people talk about the elevator pitch. Uh, I, I go back to that your, brand's got, your brand has to have meaning. And you know, the meaning isn't it looks cool or I got a cool logo. Um, it's more about what is the, the essence, uh, what's the deep down meaning of your brand. And are you, are you living it? Are you delivering that every day, uh, from everything from the website experience to the customer service experience to the product experience? Are you delivering on your brand promise?
Thanks so much again for your time today, John, and for answering these questions from our eager listeners. We certainly appreciate your wisdom on all of these subjects and your firsthand experience. Once again, my name is Linnea Haggard, and I hope to catch up with you on our next episode of Different by Design. Thank you.